Okay, welcome back. Uh, you're live with us again at 102.2. This is uh, Ben and... Will. Okay, well, well done. Very, we... <laughs> very seamless, Will. <laughs> Sorry, man. Uh, yeah, so this week we covered a, uh, two topics. Uh, Hindu society, uh, where we look mostly at caste as the primary mechanism for structuring Hindu society uh, and how that's understood and, and how it's been criticized. And then at Hindu gurus as one of the primary means in which Hinduism has been propagated around the world in really from the middle or the beginning of the 20th century, but in, in larger numbers from the middle of the 20th century uh, onwards. Now, Ben, when we talked about caste, um, I sensed a uh, Quite a bit of discomfort on your part yeah. in dealing with uh, this issue. Why were you feeling it, it was uncomfortable. uncomfortable? Because, you know, I think, um, as we were just talking about before, you know, one of the things we deal with in the in this comparative studies of religion is that, you know, we're trying to present these religions in a kind of a neutral, impartial, academic way. And when it comes to something like caste, um, it's, it's, it's sometimes hard to do. And... On the one hand, you want to present, you know, this kind of really highly unequal system that has been really influential over the course of uh, a long time in India. Um, but on the other hand, you don't want to over-present that as, that as though that kind of is all that defines Hinduism or that all Hindus believe in this strong way about caste. Um, and then there's this sort of complicated nature of the politics of the moment, or, you know, or the politics of where you teach this and how you teach this. I mean... Our position um, as outside the tradition, as, you know, um, uh, people teaching it in a time and a place in society where um, uh, Hindus are a minority religious group facing, like, real discrimination in this country. Um, you know, it, it just creates all these levels of complexity and, um, you know, challenge. I think both, you know, both not for us in one way, I guess we're more used to dealing with it, but particularly for the students, right? And so... Um, I guess you know one of the things I just wanted to mark here is that that's all real, and sometimes the discomfort in these things is is just it's unavoidable, right? That this mm -hmm. is just part of what we do. We deal with um, in academics, you have to deal with with complicated things like this. But also, this is this is a general problem within the study of religion, right? That um, a lot of the times, and we'll see this in Buddhism too. There's aspects of Buddhism um, that are really uncomfortable, and that you you know um, sort of make you feel differently about a religion that maybe you want to feel one way about. I mean, I, I'm, I think I can disclose here, you know, I'm very sympathetic to a lot of Buddhist teachings and, um, I do myself meditate. And, um, I don't identify as a Buddhist, but I, I, you know, but there are things in Buddhism that make me really uncomfortable and, um, presenting them in a neutral and objective way, uh, in, in a scholarly way, and then dealing with them as students, um, you know, is, it, it's tricky. Yeah. Um, I think there is a slight difference in, the, in, in that I think Buddhism has, I want to say much better PR, but I'm not even sure that it's deliberately been a conscious thing on the part of, of, of Buddhists, but that Buddhism uh, is much more positively received in general, mm. uh, or has been historically. But actually, that's one of the reasons why I have changed the way that I present caste uh, over the years, um, and this year it was particularly sharpened up by choosing. Uh, we, we freshened up the readings for the course this mm -hmm. year, and uh, previously I'd asked students to read a very sober academic discussion of uh, of caste by Declan Quigley, mm. um, which, however, uh, Quigley tends to line up as seeing caste um, as a political or economic phenomenon 
dressed up in religious garb mm. rather than as something. But the way that I, despite that, but I, ch- I changed that, a very academic and arguably quite difficult reading uh, with a kind of searing activist position mm. represented by both Ambedkar, um, mm-hmm. who was a scholar, but not a scholar of religion, um, but an extremely educated, you know, very well educated and very smart uh, man, and then uh, an activist, um, Arundhati Roy. And I think part of the reason for that was actually prompted by kind of the opposite of what you're talking about, mm. is that I used to present caste um, very much as it's presented in the Dharma Shastras, which means from the Brahmanical point of view, from mm-hmm. the point of view of the people at the top of the caste system, in as neutral and objective a way as I could. Mm. Um, and I even, I was aware that caste as a system of systematic hierarchy is contradicts our instincts, our, our you know, widely shared value of egalitarianism, uh, something that New Zealand prides itself on uh, kind of stereotypically. And, and that... Therefore, I, I would present it as, as neutrally as I could. And at the end, I even used to have a slide saying what arguments can be mounted in favor of, of the caste mm, system. Um, and I even used to set as an essay question um, because I thought it ran so counter to, you know, the values of the Italian va- values of most of us to ask students to defend the caste system because it forces you to think, forces you... And I guess one of the reasons I've shifted, well, one of the reasons will be the scholarship I've read. And I, I've been influenced by um, reading works by uh, people like Rupa Vishwanath, yeah, yeah. Um, Nathaniel Roberts, and others who have, you know, brought home the the, the radical inequality of caste yeah. and, and its continuing effects. But to be frank, the other reason is because I have found students extremely reluctant to engage in criticism. Mm. They uh, there's a fairly ingrained kind of relativism where uh, many New Zealanders are happy to say well that's their culture and we shouldn't be critical of it we should just accept that that's the way that they see things and Mm. uh, so I guess in a way I'm trying to tip the balance back and say well yes but I mean the other reason the other thing is to say that uh, presenting the opposite view Ambedkar ceased to be a Hindu. Mm -hmm. Uh, He converted and he led many others, low castes, to convert to Buddhism as a way of escaping Hinduism. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are many, many critics of caste within Hinduism, and not just in recent years, but but the whole Bhakti movement can be seen as a criticism of caste. I mean, arguably as an ineffective criticism of caste, because despite the emphasis that, you know, caste structures are not important, what's really important is devotion. Um, that hasn't led to the revolutions of you know tearing down caste structures. Rather, it's tended to reinforce them. Mm. Um, that you know, caste isn't important. Devotion mm. is all that matters, and therefore don't don't change your caste. Mm. Don't, don't change anything about it. Uh, stay I mean, in that w- structure. W- one thing though that was effective, I will say, about the, the, the teaching the shastric view or the kind of normative view and getting them to kind of you know as as um, counterintuitive and maybe. Uh, immoral you know feeling immoral as it might have been for the students was um, when if they understood the 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 how struck caste worked in hindu society or in you know traditional shastric views of hindu society they could then apply that logic to new zealand society and i think a lot of the time the punchline previously was you know you we think that this is something that just happens in other cultures well actually it happens in our own culture too and it was we could help call students attention to the structural inequalities in our own society 
And, but by by tilting the balance back in in this other way, um, somehow I think we've muffled that a little bit. That mm-hmm. we we've then kind of now said, okay, well, look how bad this this stuff is over there, and we've maybe. Um, let our own cultures off the hook a little bit. And if there was a way to kind of do both those things, I probably would have felt a bit yeah. better about it. No, but it's, no. it's, it's, a, it's a challenging topic for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I did, I did toss in, you know, the comparison with gender discrimination in New yep. Zealand. Um, and this reminds me of, uh, one of the, one of my first teaching experiences. Uh, I used to teach in a university in Newcastle in the Northeast of the UK. Uh, and we had, definitely two main groups within our students um there was a group of local students who mm. were geordies mostly working class it's a relatively deprived area um uh and they were one group and then the other group were what we used to call uh the uh, cream of society uh that is the rich and thick so <laughs> the students who were uh, who were well educated, had been privately educated in many cases, had done well, but didn't have the grades that it took to get to an even better university. And in the UK, that largely means Oxford or Cambridge. So those students w- would come to Newcastle because it had dinner party cachet, I discovered, that, that it was acceptable for their parents in their manor houses in the south of England to right. say, yes, little Johnny's gone to, gone to Newcastle. That was socially okay. And one of one of the students from the latter group, um, when I was teaching the caste system, we had a tutorial system, and she had a cut glass, privately educated English accent, uh, came from a very prominent family uh, in, in the UK. Um, uh, she wasn't actually an aristocrat, although we did have uh, an aristocrat in, in the class, uh, a genuine blue blood, um, the daughter of the Duke of Devonshire. Um, anyway, this other, other girl at one point in the discussion of the caste system said, well, I don't think there is such a thing as class in Britain anymore. And the, uh, the temperature in the room with these Geordie working class students who, who made up most of the rest of the group, I mean, the temperature fell about 20 degrees and it was just a fascinating moment mm. of how privilege is invisible from above. Yeah, basically, yeah of course. That, that, yeah, yeah. that she couldn't see. Uh, now, I'll give her credit. In her final year, we had, a, we had a kind of anthropological dissertation option where students could do an ethnography of their own. And she did an ethnography of, of the student group that she came from, who the Geordies dismissively referred to as the Ra's, mm. as in the Hoorah Henry's, right? And she actually did an ethnography of, of her own group. So she went, you know, through her education, she completely transferred. Mm. But, but that, that's the point. Our own societies, we have these structures um, they're often because they're not explicitly stated. Mm. They're harder to detect. Yeah. And you know there is this idea that um, what's the New Zealand phrase? Jack's as good as his master. I'm not sure. Mm. I mean that was the historic you know saying about New Zealand. But yeah. So I think in opening other societies up to this critical lens, um, we're doing it as part of a of a wider project. I mean I do think there's a genuine question though in if you're dealing with. Hinduism and the six weeks or so that I, I get the 12 lectures that I'll give on Hinduism may be the only academic discussion that students face of Hinduism should you focus yeah. only on the good stuff should, That's you, right. should you allow the tradition to put its best foot forward mm. um, like you I'm sympathetic to Hinduism um, I find it endlessly fascinating I, but I, I would not identify myself as a Hindu um, but yeah I, and I want to present the tradition in a way and break down prejudices against against people, but I, I mean, I would hope our students don't carry many of those, and it's important that we examine 
the tradition in the round and that we reserve the right to be critical of it. And, and w- again, when we come back to look at gender, um, yeah. this is going to be an interesting question. And I think there I will tend to go in the other direction. I will tend to present um, uh, ways of thinking that our views of, of gender equality might be open to question. Um, and if anything, and I think it, it, you might see the opposite. I mean, in Buddhism, I, I think gender is one lens when you look at sort of various institutions in Buddhism where it looks less sanguine than than, than people think. I think yeah. that so that'll that'll be an interesting week for us. Um, I'm aware of the time, Will. We did have other. The only other thing I want I, I wanted to mark mm-hmm. today is you know one question I asked you before we started was about why we ended with gurus and. Let me just offer you my answer, which I think was better than yours, which is that of course for was. two for two reasons. Uh, one is that you know in the figure of the guru, as we mentioned today in class, we see the coming together of three margas in the complex way, in a complex way. But also, I think you know ending with the guru is a kind of a nice segue into Hinduism, because Buddhism. essentially, uh, sorry, into Buddhism, because essentially the Buddha emerges from, um, I guess, an early Hindu milieu as a guru, as a kind of a a separate teacher um, who in many ways is building on and claiming some kind of continuity with earlier teachings and that it's basically a kind of successful guru movement that we're looking at with with Buddhism you know mm-hmm. at least in its early early moments so I think that was a brilliant answer thank you for <laughs> confirming that I, I made the right decision if for entirely the wrong reasons based on my limited perception of of the world um okay I'm going to draw another contrast um which is that uh, when you were talking about the Buddha as a successful guru movement, um, well, why not describe Hindu, uh, Christianity, uh, yeah. or indeed uh, Islam yeah. as the same? And that's where Hinduism is different, because Hinduism doesn't point to a single originary founder. That's interesting. There isn't that one person right. that we hang the original tradition. I mean, that's you right. could argue Vyasa or Janavalka, but, but, but there isn't one, right? There's, there's multiple ones. So... Uh, and actually, to be honest, right now I'm trying to think of another major religious movement that doesn't do that, and I can't think of one off the top of my head. It's, yeah, that's I mean, like even Judaism. Would, would you yeah, say Moses, Abraham? God, lineage is is yeah. absolutely essential. The covenant yeah. with a certain yeah. Um, lineage. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, and I think just to conclude, as we're finishing about Hinduism, I mean that's one of the reasons why some scholars have argued that Hinduism is not one religion, that it's multiple religions. Mm. Um, and that's why, Ben, my job is much harder than yours because you are only giving <laughs> the students one that. religion this semester, whereas I am giving them many, many religions. So, yeah, I yeah, think that's a good right. good moment on which to stop. Hooray. For three cheers for Will, everybody. Wait, hang on. I'm going to give you the outro. <laughs> <laughs>